got to accentuate the positive feeling. Mind it to negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. Because each of us lives only for decades, not for centuries, we don't necessarily have the perspective, the yardstick, to appreciate the striking ascent of the human condition that's been our fortune since the Enlightenment. In his new book, Full of Argument, and the data to back it up, Harvard psychology professor Steven Pinker makes the case against doom and gloomism, especially in academia, and tribal know-nothingism in politics. Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress, makes it clear that Pinker thinks those human accomplishments are our shield and buckler against the forces of the right and the left that would diminish or derail this triumph of humanity over, in some cases, the worst of humanity itself. Are are we in such a grim state in the world that we need a good bucking up like the one you deliver in this book? We do have to put uh, put things in perspective, and uh, despite the the very real threats that we face, despite the uh, uh, anxieties from our political situation, the world, in, in, by many measures, is has never been in better shape. We're living longer. Diseases are being conquered. Global poverty is being decimated. More kids are going to school, including girls. Rates of crime are down. Rates of death and warfare are down. Uh, Democracy, despite its setbacks in the last couple of years, is much higher than it was even a decade ago. So we, uh, while being aware of the current crises, we should not take for granted the fantastic progress that we've made. And so why do our minds misgive? Why do we feel that so much around us is in disarray and in some cases going backwards? It's partly because of the way the human mind uh, assesses risk and danger. We call examples to mind from memory. And if we can think of things that have gone wrong, we think that the world is a dangerous place. We don't mentally compensate for all the parts of the world that are not at war, all the city streets that are safe, nor for the gradual improvements that never make the headlines. And we don't realize uh, how much progress has been made. Uh, likewise, when it comes to, to uh, war, we're, we're acutely aware of the wars going on, particularly the horrific civil war in Syria. But we're apt to forget about the horrific wars that took place in the past. And if your picture of the world comes from what's going wrong now, then you can be seriously miscalibrated because there are always things that go wrong. And the question is how many things are going right, and those often fall below the radar. You write about chaos versus totalitarianism. And in a sense, if you make people believe they live in chaos, then you've already sold them on totalitarianism. That's right. We do... uh, live in a state that's poised between anarchy and uh, tyranny. And uh, a good democratic government tries to steer between those extremes, give people just enough government force to keep them from each other's throats, but not so much that the government starts to prey on people. And uh, one of the easiest paths to to dictatorship is the impression that the country is falling apart. Uh, And sometimes it's more than an impression. Sometimes the country is in a state of uh, anarchy and people feel that a strong leader is better than uh, no leader at all. The accusation of uh, fake news that Donald Trump constantly levels against the media whenever they uh, criticize him. The um, gerrymandering and uh, uh, enormous influence of money in politics are uh, two forces that have eroded confidence in democracy. The um, implacable opposition of uh, the, the 
parties to each other so that they can't compromise on just the mechanics of government. Um, all, all of these show that our democracy definitely is having problems and that have in, in some ways sapped the confidence of people, particularly younger people, in our democratic institutions. When we think of, of, as you bring up frequently in the book, the Enlightenment, the idea of rationality and reason, and apply it to science, it seems obvious that on the one hand, there's learning and knowledge. On the other hand, there's ignorance. But that doesn't seem to be the sense now. You have people who have all sorts of information at their fingertips, who've had educations, who are saying, nope, 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 just don't believe it. Science, evolution, uh uh-uh. That is true of some people with some issues, uh, for sure. And the uh, Enlightenment ideal of science is not going to be a guarantee that 100% of the population uh, buy it. I mean, it, it calls for persuading as many people as possible on, on things that, that are, are persuasive. But uh, there are issues that become identity badges for tribal coalitions, just things you, you believe in to uh, affirm that your kind of people are uh, good and wise and that the other kind of people are uh, evil and, and must be resisted. And with those beliefs, those, those sacred beliefs, then people will close their minds to evidence that challenges their belief. They'll spin doctor the situation uh, and blow off uh, counterexamples. It's not that people, for example, deny that uh, antibiotics work or that drunk driving is a bad idea. Uh, it's just in, with some uh, propositions that get uh, adopted by political tribes as uh, signs of, of membership and loyalty that you, you see this irrationality. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and the, that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. So climate change is an example. What does predict acceptance of human-made climate change is is uh, politics, left-right politics. Now, the fact that people on both sides adopt positions because they're the favored position of their tribe doesn't mean that there's no such thing as the truth. There is a truth. There is an answer. But uh, people can reject it or accept it for not-so-scientific reasons. And that's something that we should be aware of in trying to make people more aware of the scientific consensus, that the problem isn't ignorance. The problem is politicization. And so as much as possible, spokespeople for the scientific consensus should be chosen from uh, different parts of the political spectrum so that climate change doesn't become a left-wing issue. And the scientific facts should be decoupled from policy solutions that are favorites of the, the right or the left. It dislodges people from the equation. Um, you accept climate change, then you've got to be a, a green, you've got to you know, you give up air conditioning, you've got to stop traveling, you've got to return to the land. People don't like that. And if they think that's what it you have to do to accept climate change, then they're not going to accept climate change. But if you drive a wedge between the fact and the remedy, then even when people disagree about the remedy, at least they'll accept the fact. The demonification, to use your word, of science in the liberal arts program uh, takes us to your other argument, which is concern about society's disinvestment in the humanities. What's the danger in that? Well, humanistic scholarship is vital to many uh, uh, ways of understanding our world. Um, philosophy is based on the idea that human I- intuition will lead to uh, fallacies and errors and confusion, that there's a, a need to clarify and analyze our concepts and our thinking. Uh, the arts is, are one of the things that make life worth living and uh, understanding the, the depth and richness and uh, historical context of the arts is just uh, 
vital to being a, a human being. And of course, the parts of the humanities that veer into um, social science and history, political science, uh, jurisprudence, international relations, we, we need those to understand what works and what doesn't in society. So it, I think it is vital that the humanities uh, and social sciences continue to flourish. Uh, and I think some of the damage, though, is uh, has been self-inflicted, frankly, that in many uh, parts of the humanities, the language is uh, incomprehensible. Some of the worst academies comes out of uh, English departments and departments of, uh, of languages and, and, and the arts. There's been a very rigid and extreme leftism, uh, kind of bordering on Marxism in large sectors of the humanities that have turned many students off and also restricted the range of ideas that can be considered and uh, debated. And the uh, cultural pessimism, the belief that our society is getting worse and worse and that any day now it'll collapse, not exactly an inspiring message. And it's not surprising that a lot of students get kind of turned off if that's what we have to offer. So the humanities should be inspiring and uplifting then? I, I think that they should about things that deserve uh, uh, uplift. That is the spectacular life that uh, the particular humanities scholars live, thanks to living in an affluent society that has devoted resources to supporting um, scholars, the fact that they live in a liberal democracy and can criticize society without worrying about being uh, shot or, or jailed, as their counterparts do in many parts of the world. And there is a, a spectacular uh, ingratitude and um, obliviousness to the gift of liberal democracy among uh, many of these uh, critical theorists. Um, I think there should also be more of a uh, integration with the sciences. There is, a, a, I think, a demonization and a paranoia in a lot of intellectual life about the use of scientific uh, concepts and thinking to analyze the social world and the human condition. You come back to several times in the book the tragedy of the commons. And I'd like you to describe it and how it's applied now in our circumstances. Yes, the tragedy of the commons was a, a parable that that uh, illustrated a recurring scenario in social and political life, namely that what might be rational for every individual can be irrational for the society as a whole. The original idea was that the town had a grassy commons, uh, everyone had their flock of sheep, and uh, for any individual shepherd thinking, should I graze my sheep on the town commons? The answer was, well, yeah, it's but when all of them act that way, then the commons can be overgrazed. Every last blade of grass can be pulled up, and it's worse for, for everyone, even though it's rational for every individual. There are many examples of uh, uh, pollution is uh, certainly one where uh, I, uh, I ride around in my SUV and uh, you know, I get places of comfort with air conditioning and uh, it's, uh, no, no skin off my nose. And that's true for everyone. But of course, you add up all the emissions and we're all worse off. In tragedies of the commons, the classic solution, even within free market economics, is it's important then for someone to own the commons. Uh, the, most, the most obvious owner is the, is the government. And they can, as they say, internalize externalities, uh, which is a fancy way of saying you, you pay for the damage that you do. And so you have an incentive to do less damage. Moreover, it's uh, often a, a rational approach as opposed to across-the-board prohibitions. Some of that seems to be in retreat as public lands are being shrunk, as the go-ahead is being given to pollute the air more, pollute the waters more without penalties. 
Well, yes, and I, I, I do think, and and I um, make it pretty clear in the book that a number of specific policies of the Trump administration are threatening to undo exactly the progress that that I uh, document, and certainly privatizing the, the, the commons, or or for that matter, just. Um, going back to a state of anarchy where everyone can pollute however much they want. Uh, it's just not a form of progress. And it's based, I think, on the misconception that we can have economic growth or we can have uh, a uh, cleaner environment, but we, we can't have both. And some on the green left uh, advocate that trade-off and say we've got to uh, undo the Industrial Revolution, go back to a much smaller society, live in harmony with, with nature, um, abandon our consumerism. Uh, where they embrace the same dichotomy from the other side, but with the with the right combination of policy and technology, we can um, put a cap on how much damage we do to the environment, make sure that we we do protect it, and that uh, that we've achieved a certain amount of success already. We can prove that in Southern California. Southern California is a uh, a, a prime example where there's less of the purple haze that <laughs> Jimi Hendrix immortalized. Uh, still too much, but but much less. And a lot of environmental regulations and, and uh, pollution control technologies really have worked. Donald Trump puts a big asterisk on a lot of this. I identified a number of particular um, policies and, and, for that matter, personality traits that he has that push against some of the, the uh, sources of progress. And also kind of locate him in a longer tradition of counter-enlightenment thinking that has been influential in, in the West ever since the Enlightenment itself. There have been uh, ideologies and political movements that uh, glorify the, the nation and the tribe and the race as opposed to individual people that look back to a golden age instead of trying to work for a better future, that uh, uh, think of a leader as embodying the inherent uh, wisdom and virtue of the people as opposed to a custodian that is um, constrained by uh, laws and, and checks and balances. So this tension has been with us for a long time, and, and the uh, authoritarian populism in, in, in this country, represented by Donald Trump, is I think the latest pushback of counter-enlightenment forces over the, uh, the ideals of uh, humanism and reason and, and science and progress. But in many ways, I think what we're seeing now is, uh, is, is highly unusual, even by the standards of uh, counter-enlightenment movements in American politics. Professor Pinker, given all this, what keeps you up at night? Uh, well, the possibility of nuclear war. I don't think it's particularly likely. There hasn't been a nuclear weapon used in, in war since uh, Nagasaki more than 70 years ago. Uh, not even the relatively small tactical nuclear weapons have been used. That's just a line that, uh, that hasn't been crossed. The complete abolition of nuclear weapons, I think that should be our long-term goal. And uh, until we get there, uh, that's very much something to worry about. Professor Steven Pinker, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Dave Ween and Bill Wadsworth and edited by Annie Chelsea. The audio clip is from MSNBC, and the music is Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters on the DECA label, and the Jimi Hendrix Experience is on Track Records. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. I am Pat Morrison.
kiss the sky.